In the realm of true crime, every crime scene tells a story. Every story has its truths. These are the stories from inside the crime scene tape that separates fact from fiction. Twenty-two-year-old Melissa Northrup, the pregnant mother of two children, vanished from a Waco convenience store in the middle of the night. In the last episode, U.S. Marshals learned that a car belonging to a convicted triple killer was found near the site of Northrop's kidnapping. They didn't believe that it was just a coincidence. The race is on to find Kenneth Allen McDuff before he can kill again. Parnell and Mike McNamara fit the image of U.S. Marshals from the Old West tradition perfectly. Both wore white Stetson cowboy hats, western-cut suits, cowboy boots, holstered handguns, and steely-eyed expressions on their stone faces. Then throw into this mix an aggressive U.S. attorney and one of the world's top manhunters from the Marshal Service and an Irish cop from New York City and you got five men who hunt fugitives with a vengeance. As I told you in the last episode, Marshal Parnell McNamara's instincts told him that convicted triple killer Kenneth McDuff was good for the murder of Melissa Northrop. He was the devil himself. I mean, he was, he was the epitome of a cold-hearted, heartless, evil, dirty son of a bitch. The marshals wanted to start a manhunt for McDuff. The longer he was free, the more women he would kill. The local district attorney didn't think there was probable cause to issue a murder warrant. The marshals urged U.S. Attorney Bill Johnston to help. Johnston is now in private law practice. We sat down together to discuss the McDuff serial murder case from three decades ago. Johnston used a little creativity to obtain probable cause to get an arrest warrant to search for McDuff. He found a drug user that McDuff had given one tab of LSD. A DEA agent verified that the LSD paper wrapper was a silver palm tree pattern sold by Austin drug dealers. Johnston says that was all he needed. So the DEA guy said, tell, tell, me, tell me, bud, what did it do to you when you took the LSD? And he said, oh, you know, I was copping tracers. And I didn't really know what that meant. And he said, you know, I was copping tracers, catching my hands. And he did a motion as if his hands, like he's catching a ball between his hands, but he's actually he was catching his own hands because of the effect of the <clears throat> rat poison, LSD. And so um, I, in my mind, now we've got a specific, we've got a controlled substance, which the DEA guy would say, yes, that is the effect of LSD. But a specific pattern. I don't have the drug, but, and so I wrote an affidavit for the DEA agent uh, describing what the kid said, 
and asked the DEA guy, would you, do you feel comfortable signing this as probable cause for an arrest warrant for Kenneth Allen McDuff for distribution of one type of LSD that we don't have? And he said, absolutely. He's because it's a, you know, it's a unique deal. It's not like, right. it's, it's not like some other drug. It's very unique. It had, a, it had a pattern. So anyway, I called the ma- federal magistrate, asked if he'd see the agent. He said he would. And 30 minutes later, we had a federal arrest warrant for Kenneth Allen McDuff for distribution of one tab, which we didn't have, of LSD. And the entire Kenneth McDuff manhunt for the next six, eight weeks was based on that. That's all the authority we had. We didn't have any, nobody had a murder warrant for McDuff. We had a single tab LSD warrant. And he was chased all over the country. Johnston and the McNamaras would work their normal hours at the federal courthouse until quitting time. Then they would hit the street looking for McDuff in the criminal underbelly of Central Texas. It's so bad that if you're in it long enough, um, you'll be so depressed uh, that you have to, have, you know, you have to pep yourself up because it's so negative and it's it's a it's a slippery slide to hell, basically the whole thing. And uh, yeah, it's terrible. I mean, people, almost everybody we talked to had been to prison. Almost everybody we talked to was on drugs or used drugs. So. Johnston says Marshal Parnell McNamara and his brother Mike, who is now deceased, were a force to be reckoned with. So the McNamaras, um, our deputy marshals, were very unique in every respect. Um, their daddy had been the marshal. Their you know, family had been in law enforcement for 100 years. And they operated the, the way they th- thought and this that sounds really corny or it sounds silly but if you watch the movie tombstone and you think about how those actors portrayed the erps the Earp brothers and doc holiday their mindset which was we're not really afraid of anybody and we're going to try to do the right thing if that's not convenient and we're tougher than you and shoot straighter and hit harder that's the way they they lived and that's the way they were marshals they were a throwback uh, both of them were great horsemen uh, <clears throat> they they dressed uh, much like you would have a hundred years ago I mean not weird but just western the McNamara's drove a four-wheel drive jacked up suburban nicknamed Bigfoot it was a rolling war wagon Parnell McNamara says his brother Mike carried a 12-gauge shotgun bolted to a military M16 machine gun with a 90-round drum magazine attached to it. They called it the Annihilator. We wanted to make sure that we outgunned these scumbag punks because we knew a lot of them were armed. And uh, we armed ourselves with the very best firearms that we possibly could. We had M16s, fully automatics, uh, we had a couple of M14s, super bad 308 machine guns. We had 12-gauge shotguns. We had 10-gauge Magnum shotguns. Uh, we had the very best pistols that we could carry. So we were ready to do serious business with any of these people that that wanted to give us a hard time or do something to us. Mike was a force to be reckoned with. And 
people jokingly described Mike as a modern-day Doc Holliday with uh, oh, yeah. the same, uh, you know. Well, there was, a, there was a quiet man there, but there was a volcano ready to erupt. <laughs> yeah, you could, you could definitely say that. Um, Mike was my partner mm-hmm. in law enforcement mm-hmm. the whole time. He and I hired on with U.S. Marshals in 1970 the same day. And so Mike was right there by my side every step of the way. I never had to wonder where Mike was. And uh, Mike was also my partner in life. Uh, We went to school together, grew up together, drove the same cars. And so uh, I totally trusted Mike Mm -hmm. to have my back. He was always there. And you were going night and day. Night and day. Uh, A lot of times we were sleeping on the floor in the marshal's office. We'd wake up in the marshal's office, and then we would be off and running in every direction. We followed up every single lead. Cornell McNamara wanted to get the America's Most Wanted TV show to feature McDuff as a prime suspect in Melissa Northrop's murder. All they had was a pretty flimsy drug warrant. The marshal service headquarters vetoed the show. But the service did send in the head of a task force called Operation Gunsmoke. Marshal Dan Stoltz, one of the best manhunters in the world, came to Waco. So then we got Dan Stoltz, who was head of the task force, and an unbelievable investigator, an unbelievable marshal, a super smart, tough guy. I can't say enough nice things about Dan Stoltz. Dan Stoltz came in. He evaluated the situation. Mike and I and Bill and everybody else, Sheriff Pamplin, ran it down to Dan Stoltz. This is one of the most dangerous SOBs in the the country. He's killing people as we speak. We believe that. And we've got to catch him. Time is running out for a lot of innocent people out there. So then that's when Dan Stoltz put the word out to Washington, D.C. that we need help here. Mm -hmm. We need Whatever it takes, we've got to catch this guy. Stoltz rolled into Waco with a command post called Red October, named after the Tom Clancy movie. Today, Dan Stoltz raises cattle on his ranch in Texas. Stoltz retired after 33 years of hunting fugitives. Did you have a sense of how much work those three with Billy had done before you got there? Um, Because they told me they were pretty much exhausted. They, They... They were the ones that ran with the ball. You got to remember, nobody was really listening to them in the beginning. Nobody was listening to them, and uh, those three ran with the ball. Uh, they didn't have any resources. They had what there was in that little office, and that was it. McDuff's prison history was the starting point for Stoltz's manhunt. I did a little research, and I knew him as a broomstick killer. And so I started pulling up his stuff. Uh, the first thing I wanted to do... Uh, is find out uh, who his bunkie was, who he hung out with in the prison, who would he reach out. It, it's, it was my experience that when it's like a someone gets caught with their hand in a cookie jar. It's not fun unless you tell your friends that you got caught or you got away with it. The marshals needed intelligence about McDuff's known associates inside and outside the prison system. John Moriarty, an undercover prison investigator, knew that world better than anyone. When he first walked into their office, the marshals mistook Moriarty for an ex-con. He came in to the office, 
and his wealth of knowledge of the prison system was just so incredible. And But at that time, he was working undercover. He looked and talked like an inmate and almost shoulder-length hair. Yeah, he did. He looked like he was... He was out on parole himself. Yes, yes. And, and his language uh, was colorful, to say the least. Yes. But I, he, talk, he talked just like an inmate. Yeah, he did. And, uh, you know, the minute we heard him talk and saw him, we said, hey, this is our guy, you know. Moriarty was a tough Irish cop from New York City, highly experienced in working undercover drug investigations. He was the only lawman in Texas history to go undercover behind bars as an inmate. From the time we met, I regarded Moriarty as one of the few honest people trying to do the right thing inside a corrupt system. So were you an Irish cop walking the beat in New York City? <laughs> yeah, in fact, well, actually in uh, in Bergen County, New Jersey is where I worked, and uh, and right across the river from New York City. And uh, Was there something there that prepared you for being a fugitive hunter later? I really liked working undercover narcotics, and I never thought I'd leave that uh, job until this case. You know, we relied on your skills and your mouth and your ability to talk to people uh, in a uh, and be able to read people, I thought I was, I still think to this day I'm pretty good at reading people and, and if they're, and, and how dangerous they are. And um, I think it's served me well in my life so far. So Bill Johnston says Moriarty pulled back the curtain on the inner workings of the parole board and prison system. The system tried unsuccessfully to get Moriarty to illegally divulge secret grand jury testimony. Officials feared the feds might discover how McDuff really got out of prison on parole. Well, to me, he sounded like a New Jersey uh, newspaper salesman or something. The way he, his his accent <clears throat> and his his uh, pace of speaking um, was was very not Texan, uh, although he was unfamiliar to me totally. Like I said, he was a he was foreign to me almost the way he carried himself. And then I realized this guy's been through it. This guy's seen things. He has, he has done some things. I, I didn't know they allowed someone to go in prison undercover like that, as Moriarty did. So anyhow, I, I was uh, taken by him by his professionalism, his toughness, and everything. He was great. And so he, he, he made our world, it was as if our world was flat and he made it round. And we were almost one-dimensional until John got involved. Moriarty simply could not believe that McDuff, a sexually deranged triple killer, had been released on parole. Prison crowding or not, it just didn't make any sense. He was truly a uh, uh, sexually sadistic, psychopathic killer. I mean, that's he had it all. And... Um, if I had run into him on the street, you know, he worked in a, uh, a convenience store at one point, would I have gotten any sense of how dangerous he was? No, um, not, not, uh, he, he wouldn't be a threat to you. I mean, um, he, he, he's only a, a threat to uh, women that, that he would target. And um, he, uh, he, I mean, he got along, uh, he wasn't, 
a lot of people didn't like them, but it's like I, you know, when I teach, I teach a class for uh, interview and interrogation of career criminals. You know, um, I talk about guys that like McDuff that, you know, when you're interviewing him and you're talking to him and he's looking at you, um, all he's thinking is, what's coming out of your mouth? How's it going to benefit me? Uh, period. That's all. And that's what you got to remember when you, like, when you talk to these guys. And because and, um, they, they don't care. They don't have no conscience. They don't care about anything but themselves. And that's absolutely true. Next on True Crime Reporter, just as Sheriff Larry Pamplin predicted after he heard about McDuff getting out of prison on parole, more women are disappearing. More bodies are showing up. During this uh, time frame, you know, there was other victim found near the techno, technical school campus. Valencia Joshua from Fort Worth, she was found. We were out there for that. Um, that's where I found a grave that McDuff had pre-dug uh, near where Valencia Joshua was buried. We want to be your favorite podcast and we'll appreciate your review wherever you are listening to this podcast. If you have a suggestion or know of a case we should look into, email us at fan at truecrimereporter.com. To follow our email messages with updates and bonus information from episodes, please join our fan base at truecrimereporter.com. True Crime Reporter is a trademarked and copyrighted news production hosted and written by me, Robert Riggs, executive producer, Elizabeth Arnold, producer and operations manager, Grace Woodward, Producer, Siler Burr. Original music for the Free to Kill series, Blair King. Sound design for Free to Kill, Matt Stoker. Graphics, Brian David Kerr. You can read more about all of our news team members at truecrimereporter.com. Please tell your friends who love true crime that they can bypass secondhand tales and get their true crime fix here with authentic stories straight from the source. Tell them that True Crime Reporter is one of the few podcasts where you can hear raw, unfiltered accounts from law enforcement victims and even convicted criminals. And sign up for my free newsletter on the homepage of TrueCrimeReporter.com. It's your gateway to a world of knowledge and awareness in the realm of true crime and your personal safety. Thanks for listening, and until we meet again, be prepared. Don't get scared. This is Robert Riggs reporting.